0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening from wherever you're tuning in from, and welcome back to Axioms of Liberty, where I read some of the most prolific philosophical thinkers of our era in order to help you build a better foundation to understand what freedom can mean to you and how to apply it in your life. And we continue with the Voluntarist Handbook, Chapter 42, and it's titled, Fallacies You Need to Be Told About by Michael Humer. Now I'm going to tell you about some more interesting errors that human beings are prone to. If you're like most people, you probably actually need to be told about these things. Antidotal evidence. Often people try to support generalizations by citing a single case or a few cases that support the generalization. Scientists call this antidotal evidence. Example, you try to show that immigrants are dangerous by citing a few examples of immigrants who have committed crimes. Anecdotal evidence has two problems. First, usually when people do this, they don't pick a case randomly. They search for a case that supports their conclusion while ignoring the cases that don't, also known as cherry-picking second random variation. Even if you pick the cases randomly, it can easily happen just by chance that you picked a few atypical cases. In the immigration example, what you should actually do is look up the statistics on crime rates for immigrants compared with native-born citizens. Assumptions. One of the major ways we go wrong is that we simply assume that things we don't know. Unfortunately, when you assume things you go wrong a lot more often than you expect. You should assume that most of your assumptions are wrong. It is hard to combat this because we often don't notice what we're assuming and it doesn't even occur to us to even question it. Here are a few examples. Suppose you hear a statistic about how common intimate partner violence is in the United States. This is where someone physically abuses their girlfriend, boyfriend, or spouse. You naturally assume that the vast majority of these cases are men beating up women, and you might just go on reasoning from that implicit assumption. In reality, though, survey evidence suggests that men and women suffer this kind of abuse about as equal as the other. Or suppose you hear a statistic stating that most murder victims are killed by a family member or someone they knew. You naturally assume that most murders result from domestic disagreements and that the murders are committed by ordinary people who lost control during an argument with a family member or something like that. In fact, it turns out that almost everyone who commits a murder has a prior criminal record. Also, the vast majority of victims also are criminals. The category, a family member or someone they knew, includes such people as the victim's drug dealer, the victim's criminal partner, the victim's fellow gang members, and so on. You just assumed that these were ordinary people but the original statistic didn't say that. I can't really properly convey to you just how often assuming things leads you astray. You need to experience being wrong over and over again in order to appreciate the point. Unfortunately, most people never come to appreciate the point because they never check on their assumptions to find out how many were actually wrong. Base Rate Neglect. A base rate is the frequency with which some type of phenomenon happens in general, i.e. the base rate for heart disease is the percentage of people in the general population who have heart disease. The base rate for war is the percentage of the time that a country is at war, etc. When you want to know whether some kind of event is going to happen or has happened, the best place to start is that with the base rate. If you want to know whether you have a certain disease, first find out how common the disease is in general. If 1% of the population has it, then a good initial estimate is that you have a 1% chance of having it. From there, you should adjust that estimate up or down according to any special risk factors or low risk factors that you have. Most people don't do this. People commonly ignore base rates. Example, suppose there is a rare disease that afflicts one in a million people. There is a test for this disease that's 90% accurate. Suppose you took the test and you tested positive. The test says you have the disease. Question, given all this information, what is the probability that you have the disease? Many people think it's 90%. Even doctors assume sometimes and get this wrong, which is quite disturbing. The correct answer is about point zero 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 nine percent less than 1 in 100,000. Explanation. Say there are 300 million people in the country. Of these, 300, one millionth, have the disease, and... don't. This test is 90% accurate. So 270 of the 300 people who have the disease would test positive, that's 90%. And 29,999,970 of the 299,999,700 who don't have the disease, would also test positive. That's 10%. So out of all the people who test positive, the proportion who actually have the disease is 270 divided by 270 plus 29,999,970 equals point zero 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 nine. Cherry-picking. Cherry picking refers to the practice of sifting through evidence and selecting out only the bits that support a particular conclusion, ignoring the rest. Simple example. I have a bag of marbles. I want to convince you that most of the marbles in the bag are black. I look inside the bag which is full of many colors of marbles, black, red, teal, and so on. I pick out five black ones, show them to you and say, see, these marbles came from this bag. I don't show you any of the other colored marbles that were in the bag. You might be misled into concluding that the bag is full of black marbles. That's like what people do in a political debate. If I want to convince you, say, that affirmative action is bad, I might search for cases where affirmative action was tried and it didn't work out or it had harmful effects. If I want to convince you that it's good, I search for cases where it really helped someone. Of course, Both kinds of cases exist. It's a big society, full of millions of people. Almost any policy is going to benefit some people and harm others. Because of this, you should be most auspiciously suspicious when someone tells you stories designed to support a particular conclusion. Always ask yourself whether they have a bias that might have caused them to cherry-pick the data. Confirmation Biased when asked to evaluate a theory, people have systematic tendency to look for evidence supporting the theory and not look for evidence against it. This happens especially for theories that we already believe, but can also happen for theories we initially have no opinion about, i.e., if asked whether liberal politicians are more corrupt than conservative ones. A conservative would search through his memory for many cases of a liberal doing something corrupt, and he would not search through his memory for cases of conservatives also being corrupt. A liberal, on the other hand, would do the reverse. Each just looks for cases that support his existing belief and does not look for evidence against it. This is called confirmation bias. To combat this, it is necessary to make a conscious effort to think of exceptions to the generalizations that you accept and to look for evidence against your existing beliefs. Whenever you feel inclined to cite some examples supporting belief A, stop and ask yourself this. Can you also think of similar examples supporting something else other than A? Credulity Humans are born credulous. We instinctively believe what people tell us, even with no cooperation. We are specifically credulous about statistics or other information that sounds like objective facts. Unfortunately, we are not so scrupulous when it comes to an accurate and non-misleading reporting facts. There is an enormous amount of disinformation in the world, particularly about politics and other matters of public interest. If the public is interested in it, there is bullshit about it. I have noticed that this bullshit tends to fall into three main categories. First, ideological propaganda. If you can learn about an issue from a partisan source, for instance, you read about gun control on gun control advocacy website, and you hear the day's news from a conservative radio show, you will pretty much get 100% propaganda. Facts will be exaggerated, cherry-picked, deceptively phrased, or otherwise misleading. Normally you will have no way of guessing the specific way in which the information is deceptive, making the information essentially worthless for drawing inferences. Second is sensationalism. Mainstream news sources make money by getting as many people as possible to watch their shows, read their articles, and so on. To do that, they try to make everything sound as scary, exciting, Outrageous or otherwise dramatic as possible. Third, laziness. Most people who write for public consumption are lazy and lack expertise about the things they write about. If a story has some technical aspect, science news, journalists probably won't understand it, and they may get basic facts backwards. Also, they often just talk to one or a few sources and print whatever those sources say, even if those sources have quite obvious biases. I can't give you adequate evidence for all that right now, but here's an antidote that illustrates what I mean. I once heard a story on NPR, National Public Radio, a left-leaning radio news source. It was about a man on death row who was about to be executed. From the story it appeared that the man was innocent. New evidence had emerged after the trial Several of the witnesses have recanted their testimony, yet the courts had just refused to grant a new trial. The only remaining hope was for the governor to grant a stay of execution. There was an online petition that listeners could sign. Usually, I just accept news stories and then go on with my day. But on that occasion, I decided to look into the story before signing the petition. With a little Googling, I found the court's decision from the convict's most recent appeal, which had been denied. I read the decision, which contained a summary of the facts of the case and an explanation of the judge's decision. What it revealed was that NPR's story was bullshit. What NPR said was basically just what the defendant's lawyer had claimed. The court carefully explained why each of those claims were bogus and provided no basis for an appeal. The most striking claim, which had initially made me think the defendant was probably innocent, was that multiple witnesses had recanted their testimony. What had actually happened was this. The defense lawyer went back to the witnesses many years after the original trial and questioned them on the details of the case. Several of them either couldn't remember the details or reported details slightly different, i.e., what color someone's shirt was. The lawyer described this as recanting their testimony, but none of them have changed their mind about the defendant being guilty. The NPR journalists had apparently just credulously reported what the lawyer told them without bothering to look up the court documents from the case. Why would they do that? Three reasons, ideological bias, the story painted the death penalty in a bad light, which a left-leaning news outlet would like sensationalism the story of an innocent man about to be executed grabbed the audience's attention and inflamed their passions three laziness checking on the story would have required work why put in that work when you know that almost all of your audience will just accept whatever it is you say long experience has led me to think that the case was not unusual This is the way news media works. Lesson Popular media stories are untrustworthy. By the way, it's no good checking them against other popular news sources because they basically all just copy one another. This also goes for most bloggers, your next door neighbor, and other casual information sources. For relatively reliable information, look at academic books and articles and government reports i.e. Census Bureau reports and FBI crime reports. Dogmatism and Overconfidence People who study rationally have a notion called calibration. Your beliefs are said to be well calibrated when your level of confidence matches the probability of you being correct. For example, for all of the beliefs that you hold with 90% confidence, about 90% of them should be true. When you're 100% confident of things, they should all be 100% true all of the time. Most people are badly calibrated. In fact, almost everyone errs in a particular direction. Almost everyone's beliefs are too confident. People say they are 100% certain of a bunch of things, but then it turns out that only say 85% of those things are even actually true. There are psychological studies of this. This is the problem of overconfidence. Almost everyone has it, and almost no one has the opposite problem of underconfidence. So you could assume that you are probably overconfident too. You should therefore try to reduce your confidence in your beliefs, particularly about controversial things, and particularly for speculative and subjective claims. Ideological Cause Judgments back in 2008-2009 america suffered a severe economic recession a lot of people lost money their jobs and were generally unhappy what set it off was problems in real estate home prices had gotten high then they dropped a lot of people started defaulting and not repaying their home loans banks were in a lot of trouble And other investors and financial companies were in trouble because they made investments that depended upon home prices staying high and home loans getting repaid. In the wake of the crisis, many people tried to explain why had it all happened. This included people with opposing ideologies. Roughly, there were people with pro-government and people with anti-government ideologies, and both tried to explain the crisis. Can you guess what the two sides said? The pro-government people said the recession happened because there wasn't enough regulation, and they listed regulations that if had been in place would probably have prevented the crisis. The anti-government people said the recession happened because there was too much government intervention, and they listed existing government policies that if not been in place, the crisis would have not happened. Notice that the basic factual claims of both sides are perfectly consistent. It's perfectly possible that there were some actions the government took such that, if the government hadn't taken them, the crisis wouldn't have happened. And also, there were some actions the government failed to take such that, if it had taken them, the crisis wouldn't have happened. It's perfectly plausible that the crisis could have been averted in more than one way either by adding certain government interventions or by removing some other government interventions. Which alternative you focus on depends on your initial ideology. Both sides took the episode to further support their ideology. We have too much government or we need more government. These conclusions were supported by their respective causal interpretations. The recession was caused by government interventions or the recession was caused by government failure to intervene. Who was right? Assume the facts are as stated that some additional interventions would have prevented the recession and the repeal of some other interventions would have prevented the recession. In that case, we should either accept both causal claims or reject both causal claims, depending on what we mean by cause. And if we mean sole cause, then we should reject both casual claims, i.e., we should say that recession was not caused by government intervention or by failure of such. If we just mean factors such that if it were changed, the effect wouldn't have happened, then we should accept both causal claims. The recession was caused by intervention and failure to intervene. It's okay to say that X was caused by Y, provided that you also recognize all other things that caused X in the same sense. If there are many different causes, then you need additional evidence or arguments to establish which one of those causes is the best one to change. In the recession case, we should need independent arguments to establish which cause of the recession, intervention, or failure to intervene it would have been better to change. Oversimplification People very often oversimplify philosophical issues. Say you're thinking about the morality of abortion. Attempting simplification would be to say that there are just simply two positions, pro-choice and pro-life, or pro and anti-abortion. Either fetuses are people and killing them is murder, or fetuses aren't people and killing them is perfectly fine. But this overlooks the possibility that late term fetuses are people but early term fetuses are not. Or maybe personhood comes in degrees and fetuses become progressively more person-like as they develop. Or maybe fetuses are persons in some senses but non-persons in other senses. So there is a range of possibility of positions. not simply just two. Viewing things in black and white terms is a common oversimplification. We look at two simple positions rather than considering a spectrum of possibilities. The problem is often that the truth is more a subtle position that doesn't clearly fall under either of the two simplest categories of the view. P-hacking Similar to cherry-picking, P-hacking or data mining Sometimes happens in science. A scientist has a large amount of statistical data, with different variables. Even if all the data is completely random, any complex set of data is going to show some patterns that look significant. Essentially, one can take the data to use it to test many different possible hypotheses. Even if all the hypotheses are false, eventually, just by chance, due to random variations in the data one of the hypotheses will pass a test for statistical significance this is one reason why many published research results especially in medicine psychology and social science are false i.e a study will find that some food increases the risk of cancer for non-smoking middle-aged men but then someone tries to replicate it and they don't get the same result because the original result was just due to chance. Speculation Speculative claims are essentially guessing about things that we lack the evidence to establish as yet. Claims about the future, or claims about what would have happened in hypothetical alternative possibilities are good examples of speculative claims. Example You're arguing whether about it's good for government to try to stimulate the economy by spending money. You say this is good because if the government hadn't stimulated the economy back in 2009, the recession would have continued much longer. This is absolutely speculative. We do not know what would have happened because in fact the government did pass a stimulus plan and we cannot now go back in time and change that to see what would have happened if it hadn't. The problem with speculative claims is that people with different philosophical or even political and religious beliefs tend to find very different speculations plausible, i.e., people who are suspicious of government will find it more plausible that without government stimulus the recession would have been shorter. So arguments that start from speculative premises are typically not rationally persuasive. Advice. If you want to rationally persuade people of something, try to avoid speculation. Subjective Claims Roughly, a subjective claim is one that requires a judgment call, so it can't just be straightforward and decisively established. For example, the judgment that political candidate A is unqualified for the office, the judgment that it's worse to be unjustly prisoned for five years than to be prevented from migrating to the country one wants to live in, the judgment that Lewis C.K.'s jokes are offensive, etc. This differs from speculative claims, because in the case of speculation, there might be ways that the claim could in principle be decisively verified, it just hasn't in fact been verified. Note. I am not saying that there is no fact or no answer as to whether these things are the case or that they are dependent on people's opinions. But what I am saying is that there are not clear, established criteria for these claims, so it is difficult to verify them. Maybe it is true that Lewis C.K. is offensive, but if some people don't find him offensive, there is no decisive way of proving that he is. People often rely on subjective premises when arguing about controversial issues. The problem with this is that subjective claims are more open to bias than relatively objective. That's the opposite of subjective claims. So people with different philosophical or political or religious views will tend to disagree a lot about subjective claims. And for that reason, they are ill-suited to serve as premises in philosophical, political, or religious arguments. Advice. Try to base your arguments as much as possible on relatively objective claims. Treatment Effects versus Selection Effects Let's say you have created a new educational program for preschool children. You want to know whether it improves learning or not. What you do is look at kids after they've had your program and compare them to kids of the same age who did not have your program and see if the first group performed better on tests. Let's say kids who had your special program perform 10 percent better on later tests on average. Then you'd probably conclude that your program works. But wait, here is another possibility. Suppose, as would usually be the case, That the kids who entered your special education program were the kids whose parents chose to enroll them in that program. The rest were kids whose parents did not decide to enroll them. Furthermore, maybe the parents who enroll their kids in special programs are, on average, smarter and value education more than the parents who do not. Furthermore... Maybe intelligence and value placed on learning are partly genetic, and so these parents pass those traits on to their kids. So the children who went into your program were already, on average, smarter and more interested in learning than children who did not go into the program. And maybe that explains why they did 10% better on tests after. Maybe your program has no effect at all. It's just that you got the smart kids in it, and that made the program look good. That is an example of a selection effect, a case where it looks like A causes B, but it's actually just that the instances of A that you tested were already more likely to be B's for other reasons. Selection effects are contrasted with treatment effects, cases where the thing you're testing really causes the effect that it's thought to cause. In the education example, academic success is correlated with taking the special program. This could be due to a treatment effect, meaning the program causes the kids to learn more, or due to a selection effect, meaning the program selects students who are already good at learning. Selection effects are often mistaken for treatment effects. Another example, you want to know if some vitamin improves people's health. So you look at people who take supplements of that vitamin regularly, and you find that they are healthier than people who don't. You think this shows that the vitamin supplements are good for people, but actually, it's more likely a selection effect. People who take vitamins are more likely to be exercising, eating health foods, and so on, which is why they would be healthier on average, even if the vitamins did absolutely nothing. What about isms? Similar to what to whataboutism occurs when someone criticizes something bad and you respond with, well, what about X, where X is some other bad thing. Example, someone complains that the current president's proposed budget has a very high deficit. You say, what about the previous president? He had high deficits as well. Or someone complains that the president just murdered a child. And you respond that some other political figure from an opposing party also murdered children. What about that, you demand? The reason people engage in whataboutisms is that, rather than being interested in practical cases and issues about what should be done in our current situation, they instead see political discussion as a kind of tribal contest, a competition between their side and the other side. where. Whomever makes the side looks better wins, so they don't pay attention to what should be focused on any flaws in any one of their side's people, i.e. a politician from their own political party. So they try to divert attention to something that's bad about the other side. The problem is that this practice systematically prevents evils from being addressed from any evil in the world unless it's literally the worst thing in the world one can always identify some other even worse evil and say well what about that for any evil done by any political leader it will virtually always be true that some other leader from another party has some time committed a similar evil and also that members of that person's party didn't do anything about it If your response when you hear about any evil currently happening is to deflect attention to some past evil committed by another person or group, that means that evil never gets addressed. Attention always gets deflected away with whataboutisms. The next time someone else is doing something evil that won't be addressed either, because people will just say, what about the present evil that wasn't properly addressed? And that's the end of the article. Very good. This one was this one was good and it actually brought about some things to me that I'm actually finding myself to do, especially the whataboutisms. I never thought about that as being a, a poor way to, you know, point out the flaws of another side or another, the opposite side of the argument that you're arguing for. Is that by doing so, It never actually addresses the other side's evils. We just end up going in circles about, you know, who can point out the greater evil or what is actually subjectively conceived as the greater evil than the other side. Hmm. Definitely like that one. Treatment effects versus selection effects. I definitely think this is a good one as well too because these are types of things where... We can have subsets of individuals who create a narrative based around, you know, trying to push, let's say, a certain type of medical treatment, or uh, anything else of that nature. When they try to create these, you know, programs or their tests that, that prove that their thing works is that they fail to actually divulge all of the other variables that could contribute to their uh, study concluding what it concludes subjective claims are definitely a hard one to uh to prove and subjectivity is in a lot of political and religious related articles of uh just any purpose right is that when you try to create this, oh, well, we need to create more fair and equitable uh, financial policies. Like, okay, well, what what's considered fair? What's considered equitable? Equitable, You know, those are totally subjective. Like, there's no way for one class or party or person to decide what's fair and equitable for every other individual because that's just a... a, a totally subjective claim that divulges into just one person being the person who has the power to decide for everybody else what's fair and equitable. Um, speculation. Speculative claims are definitely one that uh, comes out very prominently in, uh, you know, society. Speculative claims, like the the example that they use about the crisis of uh, 2009 is that you know those that agree, that are anti-government would claim that without the government's intervention you know they lean towards more that the we wouldn't have had a recession as long as we do but there's no way of actually you know knowing that because the government did intervene so all we do know is that what actually happened what actually occurred which is government intervened and therefore everything was all hunky dory after um, but trying to create and base arguments off of this type of speculation is a nonsensical one because it prov- it provides a basis that you cannot actually provide any type of uh, proof that, you know, the opposite would have had happened had, you know, opposition A not occurred or whatever. Oversimplification is definitely another thing because people like to create... These uh, philosophical conundrums, as I like to call them, like take the the trolley example. You know, you pull a switch, and it goes and kills two people, or you don't pull the switch and do nothing, and it kills five people. But the five people, your kid is on. Like, we have this very black and white outcome of either pull the switch or don't pull the switch, and we don't ever try to factor in any of the other outside. Uh, variables in that scenario like okay well who's the people who tied the people down to the track why are you being forced to make the decision why is it not somebody else's decision why is somebody else driving the train on the track knowing that there are people strapped to it like these are all other variables outside of this whole philosophical discussion but they mainly just boil it down to this black and white scenario as if those are the only two possible options like case in point um There was a video that went viral the other day of some guy was just walking around talking to people, asking them stupid questions for likes and clicks or whatever. He's a YouTube guy, I guess. And he approached this gentleman and gave him two options. He said, if you could have either economic equality or gender equality, which would you have? And the guy just says, I don't, I I reject your dichotomy because that's what you're, you're forcing me into a scenario to choose one over the other when the greater question should be why not why not just have both why can't we have gender equality and financial equality why why is it that i have to choose between one or the other and the other guy literally could not comprehend a scenario in which that that was even an option he literally kept pressing him to choose between one or the other and saying no you can't choose both you have to choose one or the other like this is what ends up happening is when we as individuals try to convince other people of our arguments is that we force them into these black and white scenarios and don't try to actually look at the broader picture zoom out and have a better more uh, nuanced take about the entire subjectivity of the scenario Um, let's see let's see dogmatism and overconfidence definitely this one definitely hit hit me really good because Everybody's always overconfident about things, and you never ever see underconfidence. Underconfidence is definitely one that's lacking in today's society, for sure. And it made me actually question my own beliefs of do what, why do I believe what I believe? Why why am I so confident that this is the answer? I, I definitely need to do a lot more self-reflection about these things. And I hope it definitely makes you question a lot more. But Overall, great read, and I hope that you guys were able to uh, divulge some uh, better understanding for how to frame your arguments in such ways that you can become a better argumentative person when, you know, going against the opposite side of your argument. I definitely want to create and be a better argumentator person as well. I definitely want to try to take some argumentation ethics classes because... I think a lot of people, when they do have a staunch point or position about certain things, they can really be deconstructed because they lack the argumentation ethics to actually defend the argument if you were able to dissect their uh, position than most. But uh hope you guys enjoyed today's read. We will continue on again with Chapter 43 next week, hopefully next Monday sorry I didn't get this episode on Monday I end up sleeping like 12 hours it's been a long day that day and then you know we got Christmas so I won't see you guys or hear from you guys until after Christmas so I hope you guys all who do celebrate this festivities that you guys have a nice safe Christmas time or time off of work whatever it is you do I'll definitely still be working cause you know gotta continue life doesn't stop because holidays occur but uh alright Until next time, guys.